You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. What we do see is the actual uh, websites getting more sophisticated, looking very similar to the real uh, websites, uh, the phrasing very similar, and just trying to use the user's attention or lack of attention to get their details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Omer Dembinski, he's a data research manager at Checkpoint Research. We're talking about their recent report on phishing. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories, we've got some follow-up this week. Uh, yeah. In our 200th episode, I asked of how many redirects is too many. Mm. And Bob writes in with a little note about the redirect limit. And in Firefox, it's actually in the about config. Hmm. There is a uh, an HTTP redirection limit that is set at 20 by default. Okay. Now— You could change it. You you can change it yeah. in Firefox. Uh, Bob said that he looked through— configuration for uh, Chrome and couldn't find anything. And I did the same thing and couldn't find it. But I did find a nice Stack Overflow article that has uh, that is titled exactly that. See, this is this is that old question. You know, when I go, I wonder something, I should probably just go Google it. Yeah, right. Because right. they have the answer. Yes, <laughs> most of the time they do, yes. Right. <laughs> uh, but there's, in this Stack, Stack Overflow article, there's a uh, a nice table that someone has put together they tested this on Windows 7, 64-bit, so I guess this is kind of old. Mm. Uh, but, like, Chrome has 19 redirects is too many. Hmm. Firefox has 20 redirects is too many. Opera has 19 redirects is too many. <laughs> Safari, it's only 16. Internet Explorer, it's, depending on your version, it's either 11 or 121, which is interesting because that's 11 squared, isn't it? Uh, yes. I, and, you know, it reminds me of, I, and I'm, I'm dating myself here, but it reminds me of Name That Tune. You know, right. like, I can redirect that page in 16. <laughs> I, I'll, do, I'll do it in 18. All right, redirect that page. So they, know, Block they, that redirect. They all seem to be around 20, <laughs> 20 redirects. I, that seems reasonable. I think that might be too high. <laughs> okay. I would like to, you know, I may, this is just my opinion. I think maybe a number like, like uh, seven or eight might be reasonable. Yeah. Maybe 20. Maybe there's a reason for doing it at 20. Uh, we're going to get more emails about this. Say, why don't you draft a, a memo to the engineers at Google? Yeah, Joe, I'll do and, that again. <laughs> and, anticipate their prompt reply. How many, how many draft memos have I sent to companies about their security policies? I was just on the phone with one of my one of my companies, one of the companies I do business with, uh-huh. complaining about the fact that I couldn't paste my uh, password from my password manager in because uh-huh. they're under the false assumption that uh, not allowing people to paste a, a password into a pa- into a password field is more secure than allowing people to paste it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you give them a piece of your mind? I did, Dave. <laughs> okay. I did. All right. And I apologize to the poor person on the phone because he had to listen to me. Yeah. But I did tell him, you need well, to tell people that's bad. Yeah. And he was like, well, thank you. I'll run that up the food chain. Yeah. Okay. Right into the trash with that. <laughs> Another crazy old man yelling about something. What um, else do we have here? We have a listener who will remain anonymous uh, sharing this anecdote about draconian IP policies. I was right. also talking about uh, intellectual property policies. He says he's been working for a startup company for five years, and he's the longest-running person at the company. 
Two or three years ago, we got a new lawyer who rewrote our NDA. Highlights of this NDA included that the company owns all IP and copyright of the employee, including what is done outside the company, even if it has nothing to do with the company and did not use any of the company resources. (laughs) To this, he asks, what if I created the next I love you virus? Would the company own that and have to take responsibility? (laughs) That's an excellent question. (laughs) What if I do something malicious in my free time? Is that now your responsibility? Yeah. That question. That's a great way to come back at this. Mm -hmm. Another fun highlight of the NDA was a non-compete clause. Normally, for them to be enforceable, uh, NDAs, they need to specify a location. The non-compete specifically said, I am not allowed to work for any similar company anywhere on earth. Okay. He says, congratulations for being technically correct on that. Yeah. Go work for Elon Musk <laughs> right, on the yeah, Mars he, colony. On Mars. Yeah. You can do all, you can compete against them all you want on Mars. Right. Uh, the NDA was also written in such a way that the contract was post-dated from the date of hire, which for me was a couple of years. Hmm. Signing that would have instantly put me in breach of it. <laughs> right. Brilliant. Yes. Uh Another stupid clause was forced arbitration. The company HQ at his work location in a U.S. state. Uh, the forced arbitration clause stated that if there was to be arbitration, it needed to take place in Northern Ireland. Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> right. How are you going to do that? <laughs> I mean, you're going to fly everybody from the United States to to Northern Ireland mm-hmm. to Belfast, presumably, because I, I know that Ireland does a lot of stuff. Northern Ireland is actually part of the U.K., though. Yeah. Um. This listener goes on to say that this NDA was such a dumpster fire that he and some other employees made a stink, and the CEO finally read it himself and then shredded all the signed NDAs. Well, good. Good for (laughs) them. Good for them. Now he says he goes through everything and reads everything he signs with a fine-tooth comb, which was really hard when he was buying a house recently. Yes. I mean, your father was a realtor. I was a realtor for a while. The amount of paperwork in buying a house is unbelievable. Yeah. I remember the first time my wife, the first house my wife and I bought, uh, and my father, of course, assisted us with the process. I remember at closing, you know, there's just this parade of documents for you to sign and basically, the 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 um, the closing agent would you know put the document in front of us, explain what it was. I would glance over to my father, who would nod his head, right, and then I would sign it, <laughs> right. Like <laughs> I was just trusting him because yep. there's no way you can read all that. But no. I, I think it's great that this listener uh, is reading this stuff. I think a lot of companies they put this boilerplate in front of you, assuming that people aren't going to read it. Right. And you have to remember that you can line things out. You you don't have to accept all of this. Right. And yeah, that's I, I correct. Think that's the way things are going to change. Uh, and NDAs are not legal in some states. Yeah, and so. they're very difficult to enforce. Yeah, and do not competes and all that stuff. Yep. So hopefully we're seeing a change in that. I think, you know, I think one thing that's come from uh, COVID and the situation we're in right now is it seems like more of the advantage has shifted to the worker's side. So yes, hopefully it's that pendulum. Yes. Yes. That I'm, I'm happy to see it switch to the worker's side. Yeah, me too. That's good. All right. Uh, We got one more here uh, from a listener wrote in and said, hi, Dave and Joe, I'm relatively new listener to the show. I heard you mention in passing that digital payment options like Google Pay or Apple Pay are more secure than a traditional card. Could you expand on this? It seems counterintuitive to me since I often try to keep financial things off my phone. Um, What do you think about this, Joe? Can you explain this? Yeah. So the transaction is is the more secure part. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that uh, that that putting a credit card into a machine or swiping a credit card as we used to do, one of the problems with that was that somebody could skim your credit card. 
Right. And all your credit card information is on that magnetic strip. Yep. Uh, they could then clone your credit card and reuse it. Now that we've gone with the chip system, it's a little harder to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea behind this is that when you enter your information into uh, whatever Google Pay or Apple Pay, uh, that information is kept by that company and they have to be set up with the credit card company. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I tried entering a second credit card and it was unsuccessful because the credit card company wasn't going to permit it. Okay. Uh, but I do have a credit card on there. So when I when I go to uh, to to scan my phone on the payment thing, what happens is the exchange of a token that is a single use token. Right. None of my credit card information gets sent across the network to, via the point of sale system, and the merchant never actually has it. Right. And really, if you think about all the credit card breaches, they don't happen by breaching. Uh, they don't happen by breaching Visa or MasterCard because those people run really secure networks. They right. they get they get breached by breaching retailers. Yeah, uh, we all think of the Target breach, but think of you know the I, one of my favorite ones to mention is Broadway Deli. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what city it was in, but they went out of business because they had a credit card breach that was so egregious. Uh, people started suing them, and they just couldn't they couldn't maintain operations. Right, um, and that was Selesnev, uh, Roman Selesnev, that did that to them. And he's actually now one of our guests at Club Fed, uh, <laughs> but it's um, it's that's why it's it's more secure. You know, if you lose your phone, and and somebody else can open it, like knows your PIN, then yeah, you have you do have an issue. Uh, you know, if you're using a biometric, perhaps it's easier or more secure. Yeah. Uh, than just a PIN. Uh, you know, it, it is a trade off. It is a trade off of convenience. You know, something I realized recently when I was using this was that my phone was really easily connecting to the point of sale system, uh, even before I wanted it to. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, and it's because they're both powered systems. You know, when I just wave the credit card in front of it, the credit card isn't powered. It's powered by a, a small field that comes off the yeah. uh, off the off the the point of sale system. Uh-huh. But my phone is powered by a battery. Right. So it can emit a much stronger signal. And just getting it close to the point of sale device, it started going, it started showing me a check mark. And I'm like, this person hasn't even finished up bringing up my groceries yet. <laughs> That's so, interesting. I've not noticed that on my iOS device. Like I have to get like right on top of it usually to, to have it recognize it. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, all this, just different, probably just differences in hardware. Yeah. Um, but to get to the point here that our listeners asking about, so it's, it's the fact that your actual information is not being sent across the network, Right. that it's a token that makes it more secure than even using, uh, well, certainly than the old days of using the card, right. The, the chip and pin systems are more secure. I would say also that, um, if you have your phone secured, that's probably, I mean, more secure than a wallet, right? If yeah. you lose your wallet, most people don't have locks on their wallets. Right. But yeah, if, you, if you lose your wallet, I can take your credit card out and start purchasing things. Right. But if, but if you, you lock lose your, your phone, phone, if you biometrics or password or whatever, right. uh, people aren't going to be able to do that. Yep. So added security there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks to all of our listeners for sending in all of this uh, terrific feedback. We would love to hear from you. That one came from Ian, by the way. Yes. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, let's jump into some stories here, Joe. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, once again, I have two stories. Okay. Because I like to talk and hear the sound of my own voice. Excellent. Uh, the first story comes from a friend of mine. Uh, I was talking to this friend uh, a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. We were uh, playing an online game. Okay. And this person was telling me 
that they got in trouble recently with their employer. Uh-oh. And the reason they got in trouble was because they had not responded to any of IT's messages about installing a new upgrade on her system. Oh. On, I'm going to go ahead and say it, on her system. Okay. Okay, now I've just reduced the population by half, but that's okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, so she was telling me that uh, that the reason she didn't do that was because she listens to this podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. But, but the thing was, she works in a distributed Environment IT is in a different state than she lives in. Yeah. They were sending her emails, and she was like, this looks like a scam. Sure. So she was ignoring them. Right. And then finally, her boss came to her and said, hey, how come you haven't run the update like IT has been asking you? And she said, every single one of those emails looks exactly like a scam email. Yeah. Right? And I'm not going to answer the phone when these people call and say, hey, it's time for you to run this update. You know what I need? I need you to tell me that it's okay to run this update. <laughs> and I'll reach out to IT and then work with them. And that's what she did. And she ran the update. Seems like mission accomplished. Yeah, exactly. I said, uh, I said, yeah, that that's a terrible way to do business in my opinion. And if you want them to have an expert opinion for me, let me know. I'll be happy to call them and tell them. Yeah. You know, Hi, this is Joe Kerrigan. From How do you Hacking think Humans IT and, could have handled this? How so. do I, IT could have handled this with a better communication process. Okay. Uh, because uh, and that's an excellent question. I can't just sit here and 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 deride IT for uh, you know probably what is a very easy way to communicate with people by using email, right? Right. right. The employees. So what has to happen is IT needs to work with management and go look. We need to get these upgrades pushed out to all the desktops. Yep. So I need you, manager, to communicate this to your individual employees. Mm. Right. This should not be something that IT should be communicating to uh, the individual users. Okay. The management should be saying, everybody needs to go to this address and run this update. And if you mm-hmm. need help, please call IT to do it. Right. Right. So you have that personal, that that person who's more closely connected to you right. leading that. Yes. Yeah. Having some, some person you've never heard of from IT reach out to an employee is – First off, you run two risks. One, that the upgrade doesn't get done, mm-hmm. right? Because people think it's a scam. Or two, you condition your employees to do whatever IT says when they call. And that's dangerous. Right, right. No, I, I think your friend did the right thing. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. What else you got? Ah, I got a story that came in uh, from another listener of the show. This story comes from the New York Post. And we'll put a link in the show notes. But there is a law firm named Beasley Allen that has filed eight lawsuits against Meta. Okay. They filed these in Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, Tennessee, and Texas. Mm -hmm. And they claim that users' prolonged exposure to Meta and its platforms have led to actual or attempted suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and reduced ability to sleep, among other health, mental health conditions. Hmm. They accuse Meta of employing addictive psychological tactics to get people to use their platforms more frequently and failing to protect young and at-risk users. Okay. I say students because I work in academia, but I meant users. Okay. Um, Reps from the law firm said that the defendants knew that their products and related services were dangerous to young and impressionable children and teens, yet they completely disregarded their own information. They implemented sophisticated algorithms designed to encourage frequent access to the platforms and prolonged exposure to harmful content, Mm. right? Now, this article focuses mainly on the lawsuits and comments from Francis Hagen, or Haugen. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. Mm -hmm. I've only ever read it. Uh, But that was last year. Do you remember her 
her comments from last year when she was releasing Facebook in, uh, inside documents yes. talking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is, this is not new information. In 2018, the BBC had an article on the addictive nature of social, of social media, reading in part that studies indicate there are links between overusing social media and depression, loneliness, and a host of other mental problems. Right. Also in 2018, the BBC's Science Focus magazine had a great article quoting Chamant Palihapitiya, who was Facebook's former vice president for user growth, saying, I feel tremendous guilt. I think we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. Hmm. He added that he himself rarely uses Facebook and that his children, quote, aren't allowed to use that crap. And I'm (laughs) substituting a word there because it's a family-friendly show, but everybody knows what he said. (laughs) Sean Parker, who is the founding president of Facebook, said social media literally changes your relationship with society, with each other, and it probably interferes with with productivity in weird ways. God only knows what we're doing to our children's brains. Hmm. Uh, So I'm glad that finally— this these lawsuits are being are being filed against companies like Meta. Mm-hmm. I would like to see them filed against more companies as well. Um, my I have long been on this show and on other shows saying social media is bad for you. Yeah, uh, I've reduced my social media usage. I'm getting closer and closer to just deleting my Facebook account. <laughs> uh, it's happening, Dave. You know, yeah. I, I say I keep it just so I can communicate with family, uh, and that's actually coming to the point where it might not be worth the trade off. Yeah, I'm uh, not on Facebook anymore. Yeah, but I, but I will acknowledge that uh, part of the reason I can be off Facebook is because my wife is on Facebook. Right. Yeah. So I I don't miss out on th- if something important happens, she'll tell me. Yes. I thought this article was interesting. I just wanted to bring it up. Remember, social media is dangerous. Keep your kids off of it. You know, one of the things about kids is that they are uh, teenagers are pack animals. Yeah. You know. They, mm. they are. They they find their own little packs and their tribes and whatever, and then they start interacting with each other. Uh, and if if they're part of this pack that's on social media, I think they're really opening themselves up to a lot of uh, emotional damage here. Yeah, I just I don't know. Having had two come, you know, you you've got kids, I've got kids. I just don't see how you do that. I don't see how. I don't know. How do you exclude them from that? It's such I, a part of the fabric of being a teenager these days. It absolutely is. I don't, I don't just don't think that's realistic. I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I, but how do we I do don't it? Know. I, I, I don't know. know. I it's think probably, it's like, you know, it's like teenagers smoking cigarettes back in the fifties. Right. Right. Like everybody, everybody did it to be cool. And in retrospect, we know how bad it was. Right. Well, that's, that's a great analogy because right. Yeah, I can imagine me saying to uh, not my kids. My kids are now in their twenties. Yeah, you know, saying to a kid, "Would I let you smoke cigarettes? Would that would I be a bad parent if I let you smoke cigarettes?" Yeah. How is this any different? It's well, you know, it's 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 addictive. It's it's designed to be addictive. Right. Um, right. But they will feel excluded if they're but not. They will absolutely feel excluded. It. It's it's that's why social media companies go after these uh, go after this demographic. It's because sure. it's a vulnerable de- demographic that's easy to capture. It'd be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm trying to think of other, if there have been any other consumer product kind of lawsuits that had to do with a product manipulating your behavior. Because this is different than a product causing injury or sickness or something like that. But something that merely influences your behavior, I, I don't know if any of our listeners can think of something from the past that 
falls into that category. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, we will have links to all of those stories in the show notes. Uh, my story this week, a uh, bit of a quick one here. Uh, this is uh, from a, um, I guess you'd call it a newsletter. It's called Midrange. It's ri- written by a gentleman named Ernie Smith, and it's titled The Fingerprint You Leave. Mm. Uh, and this is about, it really centers on a recent uh, project that a developer put on GitHub, GitHub user, uh, and it's called uh, Extension Fingerprints. And basically, uh, this user has put up a, a little web page that allows you to uh, allows this website to scan your browser, mm-hmm. and it reports back what extensions you're using. Because this, this is a website that does this, or another extension that does it. It's a website that does it. Okay. So you visit this website, and you say "scan me," and it looks. It it basically asks your browser to report back. Hey, what uh, extensions are you using? Right, and evidently this is something that browsers are happy to give up, but rat you out about. Right? Really? <laughs> yes, yes. So, for example, um, I scanned myself here, and it went through, and it said 0.08 percent of users share the same extensions. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty easy to pick me out of a crowd. Yes. Right. So this is a, this is where being an individual is not necessarily a good thing. Because this is an alternate way for the folks who want to track you online to do so. Right. This uh, article also points out another website called miunique.org. And this comes at this in a similar way. It says, learn how identifiable you are on the internet. Uh, And it's also a research project looking for the diversity of browsers. Mm -hmm. So you click a button. It says, uh, view my browser fingerprint. Let me see if I can do this right now. Yep. And it says, are you unique? And for, for me, it said, yes, you are unique among the 597,803 fingerprints in our entire data set. How about you, Joe? Are you unique? Yes, you are unique among the 597,805 <laughs> fingerprints in our data set. Do I have one more? Two more than me. Two more, so, okay. Yeah. So, and it lists out some of the things that it's using to tag you. So, in my case, I'm on a Macintosh computer. I'm using a Chromium-based browser that's a certain version. I, I'm, I have things set to English. Uh, the article points out that they can use other things like your uh, browser screen resolution. You know, there's, there's all kinds of data that your browser is willing to, again, rat out on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest differentiator here for me is that I'm using Chromium OS. Yeah. Because I'm on a Chromebook. Because I love my Chromebook for podcasting. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure there's a whole lot we can do about this, uh, protecting your identity. Um, I, I, the point of this, I think, is that there are so many different ways that the folks who want to track you can come at tracking you. Right. There's so much stuff that you leave behind your trail, um, that it's really hard to be truly anonymous if it is. you're going to be web browsing. It is. It absolutely is. The fingerprinting problem is a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, and there's not a lot that you can do that, that can stop this from, from happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you can disable JavaScript, I guess. You can change your, your string that, uh, that you're reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because every time you make a request, it sends a browser string along with it. That's where it gets the... Op, or the, um, I think that's where it gets the operating system and the, uh, I know that's where it gets the browser and the browser version. Yeah, I guess you could run in a browser that was running on a virtual machine in the cloud or something like that. You yeah. Know, like that would, 
That would help. Separate it from your, you and your location. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's expensive. Well, it, there's a cost associated with it. Sure. You can't do that for free. All right. Well, again, it's just sort of a quick one, but it caught my eye uh, about this particular way to track us online. So we will have links to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Pablo, who writes, Hello, Joseph and Dave. I don't think Pablo might be the first person to call me Joseph on the show. Yeah, he called you Joseph, but he didn't call me David. No. So, I don't know what that means. I don't know. (laughs) I'm listening to your excellent podcast since early this year, and I just received this iMessage from a suspicious sender. I just wanted to share this with you guys, so maybe you can talk about this kind of scam with your audience. Best regards. So, Dave, why don't you read this iMessage that uh, Pablo received? Okay, it goes like this. This is the novel coronavirus insurance service based on the current outbreak. The premium for COVID-19 insurance is $1,000. If you're diagnosed with COVID-19, you can get a lump sum of thirty grand. In the case of home isolation or hospital isolation, you can get $300 per day for up to 21 days to consult. Here's my WhatsApp address. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. Uh, First off, this does kind of have an air of legitimacy to it because I can imagine insurance companies offering a product like this. I suppose. However, I think that the ratio of payout of $1,000 to $30,000 is what makes me most suspicious about it, right? You know how many people uh, have contracted COVID? I mean, it's in the millions. Yeah. You, uh, insurance companies. (laughs) We're coming up on, right, right. right. Insurance companies would not be able to offer this this kind of service. It's way too much of a risk for them. Yeah. I'm cognizant of that kind of thing, right? I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have that. That's that's my critical thinking coming in, right? And and my my general knowledge of insurance because every time I, I see a business model, I go, how does that work? Yeah. And insurance companies try to take in as much premium as they can and pay out about that much in in benefits, right? And then they they try to manage their money and make make the money on what what happens with the money they keep, okay, while they're keeping it. Uh, but they need to keep the prices low to be competitive, and they need to pay benefits from time to time. Of course, they'll try to get out of paying every single benefit they sure, can. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, you know, a one to thirty ratio for getting COVID when half the population has already gotten COVID. You yeah. know, I would expect a benefit of around two thousand dollars for getting COVID at that ratio. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is playing off of people's fear of right. COVID. Absolutely, staying in the news like we were talking about last week. Also, I'd say certain for us here in the U.S., it's it's playing off the fact that. Insurance is expensive and hard right. to get here. It is. So for just if I can protect me and my family against the financial hit of a COVID infection for a thousand dollars, I might be able to scrape that up. Right. So yeah. Yeah, pretty despicable scam. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. These guys are scum. All right. Well, thank you, Pablo, for sending that in to us. We do appreciate it. If you have something you'd like us to consider for our Catch of the Day segment, you can email it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Omer Dembinski. He is a data research manager at Checkpoint Research, and we are talking about a report that they recently put out. This highlights phishing. Here's my conversation with Omer Dembinski. So we track uh, multiple aspects in the cyber landscape. 
some on a grand scale of what ha is happening globally uh, in terms of different threats that are seen on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, uh, and some more specific around uh, certain incidents, uh, either large-scale cyber attacks, for example, recent uh, Log4j vulnerability, or around specific events that are happening globally and are usually uh, taken advantage by cyber criminals to commit fraud and phishing, uh, such as uh, November sales, uh, holidays, etc. Hmm. Well, this uh, version of the report has some interesting results here. Can, can you share some of the things that really uh, rose to your attention? The report uh, that we focus on uh, is looking at what are the brands that are most imitated uh, by cyber criminals. We look at this on uh, a quarterly basis. Of course, uh, the company, our research team, uh, and our uh, protections keep track of this all the time. We just summarize it uh, once a quarter to give the aspects to general public uh, and media to help uh, raise their attention to these threats. We see many of the different uh, large brands reappear. In the latest report, we could see two interesting aspects. One uh, is a very large increase in LinkedIn-related uh, phishing attempts to uh, different users. Uh, and the second is something that we've been seeing for quite a while, is the wide variety of uh, phishing and fraud related to shipping companies such as uh, DHL, FedEx, uh, Maersk, and other companies. What are you tracking in terms of the evolution of these threats here? Are, are, the, are the actors getting more sophisticated in their techniques? So we can see different types of, of techniques. Uh, one is very common widespread attacks that have the main goal of reaching as many people as possible, hoping uh, some of them will fall for the fraud and hit the links, fill in the details, possibly fill in credit card information or other payment information, which can then be used uh, by the criminals. Because we have many brands that are sending out actual emails themselves for shipments for payments, uh, the hackers try to lure people with very similar attacks, changing the name of the sender to be similar to the actual company. Those are widespread. We can see that happening a lot. Uh, what we do see is the actual uh, websites getting more sophisticated, looking very similar to the real uh, websites, uh, the phrasing very similar and just trying to use the user's uh, attention or lack of attention to get their details. Yeah, I, I noticed in the research, uh, for example, you have a, a LinkedIn login page and uh, it's pretty convincing uh, to a casual user, certainly uh, who is you know, maybe in a hurry in the midst of their business day, there's nothing that would draw attention to it. Yes, and what the criminals can do afterwards is actually take you to the actual website and then the user doesn't even know that something weird happened. So it just redirects you to the website that you intended to go to or you would expect to go into 
sometimes it's not that you'll just get an error, an error message or stay on the page. Uh, but in some cases, the more sophisticated ones will actually seamlessly move you to the actual service that you expected. Now, another one you highlighted was a, an actual phishing email uh, that was uh, pretending to be Maersk, the, the shipping company. And that was trying to infect the, the victim's uh, computer with some malware. When the criminals send out these emails, uh, you would usually either have uh, a link to a website trying to gain your personal information or a file. That file might have a link inside of it also. Or it could be immediately a malware. Uh, usually it will be a first phase of a malware, which is getting ready to download something else onto your computer and then run any infection that the attacker is interested in. It can be a ransomware. It can be uh, an info stealer, which will wait on your computer and thus gain information to other places. A banking trojan that is more specific to getting banking information. And any other thing that they can uh, put their hands on and get onto your computer, either for short-term to gain something or for long-term if they're interested in uh, getting access that will be more inclined for uh, organizations and corporate networks. So what are your recommendations here for folks to best protect themselves against this sort of thing? So what I also personally always do and uh, what I always recommend around these things is if you get an email from a certain uh, service provider or company, best thing to do if it's something that you use, go to the actual website, do the link, the login, go to the actual website, do the login as you would usually do. And usually a lot of these notifications will wait for you on the actual website. Another thing that is very commonly used is that the name of the sender will appear to be the company. But if you look closely at the actual email address, you'll see that it's nothing to do with the real company. And people just obfuscating the name to fool you. And of course, always think, oh, am I supposed to get this email? Does it make sense? Did I actually order something? And does this meet what I'm expected to, to get? Hey, Joe, what do you think? Dave, bad guys impersonate large brands because it increases their likelihood of success. Yeah. That, stating the obvious. Yeah. That's, that's what Joe does. Very well. <laughs> uh, some of these attacks have the main goal of reaching as many people as possible. These are the guys that are playing the number numbers games. Right. right? I want to send out as many emails. Some of those are not going to make it. Some of them are. Some of those people are gonna, not going to click, but some of them are. And some of those people are going to catch on that it's a scam, but some of them aren't. And it's it's... These are the common attacks because they're the most low-effort attacks out there. Mm, so mm -hmm, there's mm. more people that can do them. Another interesting point from Omer's uh, study here is that the landing websites are getting better too. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why the landing websites aren't absolutely perfect. <laughs> because in order for you to get the login screen for any of these sites, you need to download all that information. Yeah. Right? Uh, with your web browser. You can do that and then get the code – and just change it so that it does something different but looks exactly the same. Yeah. There's no reason it shouldn't look exactly I'm, I'm, I'm probably helping the bad guys here. <laughs> I shouldn't be doing that. They're lazy. They are. They are. Uh, 
Interesting that they sometimes redirect you to the real site, so you don't even suspect that your password's just been harvested, mm-hmm. right? So imagine you're you're you get a phishing email for I don't know Facebook. You wouldn't go click on this, but somebody else would because sure. your Facebook is off or gone. Uh, but you click on it and it says log into Facebook, and you log into Facebook, but you're already logged into Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. But this website is just harvesting your credentials and isn't Facebook. So you give them your Facebook credentials, and then they redirect you to Facebook, and it looks. Just like you just logged into Facebook. Right. That's all it is. Right. Uh, what they're doing here is they're they're gaining a very precious resource. They're gaining time. Hmm. Because if you suspect that something's happened, right? Like you you click log in and it goes, oh, error. It errors out. You might be like, what's going on here? And then you might start looking around and say, oh, I just gave my Facebook password to somebody else. Now mm-hmm. I have to go to Facebook and change my password. Mm-hmm. But if you don't see that happen... You don't suspect it's happened, and then they can they have all the time in the world to leverage the fact they just stole your password. Right. Some of these take you to sites that install malicious software. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like how he's talking about the malicious software. It's it's they're essentially what we call droppers, which just let you install whatever you want on the endpoint system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can install ransomware. You can install a botnet element, whatever you know, whatever the yeah. the client adware, for a botnet yeah, is, whatever adware, it is. anything. Yeah, yep. it's just a way to put any kind of malware on your computer. Right. I like his advice. If you get the notification, don't click on the link. Go directly to the website. Hmm. Now, recently I posted on LinkedIn about our podcast being listed in the New York Times. Yeah. Which was pretty cool, Yeah, by the way. Uh, and one of my connections commented on it. Right. And I got an email in my email in my inbox that said, hey, this guy commented on your post. And I was like, oh, I know that guy. And you know what I did, Dave? Uh-oh. I clicked that link. <laughs> I did it, Dave. You're fired. Right. <laughs> exactly. We'll be looking and, for a new co-host <laughs> Hacking Humans. If you'd like to apply, you can email us. <laughs> and But here's the thing. It was a legitimate, uh, it was a legitimate LinkedIn uh, link. Right. Right. And it took me to LinkedIn and showed me, showed me the comment that, that this, uh, this connection made. Yeah. But as I'm listening to Omer, I'm thinking to myself, this did make sense, but let me do a little threat modeling here. Hmm. About a year ago, 93% of LinkedIn users had their personal information breached from that site by someone scraping the site. Right. Right. They just they they didn't break into the site. All they did was just start harvesting the information off of it and build right. a database and then put it up for sale. So a bad guy with that data set could cruise LinkedIn, see a post that you made, craft an email saying that one of your your contacts, one of your connections, mm-hmm. one of your actual connections mm-hmm. uh, commented on your uh, your status or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then send you an email to your actual email address, and it could look entirely legit. And this could be done in an automated fashion. You'd have to write it. Somebody would have to write a tool for it. Sure. But this can absolutely be done. Yeah. With the information that's already available and out there. So – you really have to be careful. I mean, I, I, I've changed my behavior, but man, I, I, I'm kicking myself for having clicked on a, a, a valid link. <laughs> well, it just goes to show it happens to the best of us, right? right? It, you had a moment of weakness, Joe. I did, Dave. <laughs> I did. we all do from time to time. <laughs> you know, it does, it, it does happen to all of us. And fortunately for me, this was not something that was um, malicious. It was actually legit. Yeah. But I, I shouldn't have done that. I should have just gone to LinkedIn and and then looked at my alerts, you know, my my 
what do they call them? Uh, I guess large notifications, notifications, whatever. That's yeah, the word I'm yeah, looking for. Yeah. My notifications and seeing that how many people have commented on it. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Omer Dembinski. He is from Checkpoint Research, and we do appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 